Hello and welcome to Buffy and the Art of Stories Season 3. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're in the right place. I am Lisa M. Lilly, author of the Awakening Supernatural Thriller series and the QC Davis Mysteries and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com. Today we are talking about Amends, Buffy the Vampire Slayer Season 3, Episode 10. In particular, I'll cover the way that Amends is a sort of Christmas carol for Angel and a series pilot, challenges in identifying the protagonist, the use of flashbacks and dreams to move the story, whether the ending is a deus ex machina, and the clear plot points in the subplots here. As always, there will be no spoilers except at the end to talk about foreshadowing, but I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. Amends originally aired on December 15, 1998. It is written and directed by Joss Whedon. I'm excited to talk about this episode because it's one that I have never loved. And as I watched it more um, analytically, I guess, for the podcast, I could see why so many people do love this episode. And I think I have a better sense of what it is doing in terms of setting up Angel the series. We start with opening conflict, that conflict that draws the viewer in. And in this episode, it is directly related to the plot. We get a subheading that tells us it is Dublin, 1838. A young man, Daniel, hurries across the snow. Angel is lurking in an alley and grabs Daniel. Daniel whimpers seeing Angel's face because he has his full vampire face on. He says uh, to Daniel, be of good cheer, it's Christmas, and then lunges to bite him. Angel, in present day, awakens in a sweat. So we have started with a flashback within a dream. This is probably part of why this episode isn't a favorite of mine. I don't tend to love the flashbacks of Angel, um, either when he was human or his early vampire days. But as always, as a series, Buffy uses dreams in particular so well. We've often seen Buffy's dreams both be prophetic and um, help her understand things and grasp things and drive her actions and choices, which is the ideal way to use a dream rather than just to convey information or be artsy. So here too, as we go through the episode, these dreams are part of the story as opposed to being something that stops the story. Next scene, Angel walks through the streets of Sunnydale. It is dark, but seems fairly early in the evening. There are holiday lights and decorations everywhere. Angel runs into Buffy. She is shopping for presents for her friends, and she asks uh, without thinking, oh, is he shopping? And then awkwardly says, vampire's probably not that big on Christmas now that I think about it. She asks how he is, he asks how she is, and we get the sense that they have not seen each other since the end of the episode, Lover's Walk, 
where she told Angel she couldn't see him anymore. As they are talking, Angel becomes distracted and is looking across the street. He sees Daniel from his flashback slash dream standing there, which really spooks him. This is two minutes and 30 seconds in, and Buffy asks what's wrong, and we cut to the credits. When we come back, the school bell is ringing. Buffy, Willow, and Sander walk out of a classroom, and Buffy explains that Angel just bailed. It was so weird. Xander says something like, what are the odds? Angel acting weird. Willow suggests talking to Giles if she's worried about it, but Buffy doesn't want to do that. She says Giles is still kind of twitchy about Angel. And Xander says, oh, it must be that whole Angel killed his girlfriend and tortured him thing. Yeah, Giles is pretty petty when it comes to stuff like that. And Buffy tells him something like, enough already, okay. A nice use of conflict, as we so often see in Buffy, to get across a little backstory and a reminder to ongoing viewers exactly what happened and why Giles will, in the episode, be so hostile to Angel. Another quick note, I love that use of the bell ringing, our friends coming out of a classroom mid-conversation. It does a couple things. One is... We don't have Buffy repeat everything that we just saw, but we know she told it to her friends. The bell ringing walking out gives us that sense of them in school without having to sit through the classes with them. So it's a nice way to do that if you want to show one of your characters in a setting like work or school where what happens isn't integral to the story, but it's important to get that as a feel for the character's environment. In the next scene, they are in one of the school seating lounging areas, and they're talking about the Christmas break. Buffy says it's going to be quiet, just tree, nog, and roast beast. She asks what Willow's doing, and Willow says she is Jewish. Remember, not everyone worships Santa because people have been saying this to her a lot. Buffy says she just meant for vacation. Xander tells them he is doing his annual sleep outside in his sleeping bag. He likes to look at the stars. So normally, we're about, uh, we're past four minutes in here. We would see a story spark or inciting incident. That almost always comes right about 10% through any story, TV episode, movie. And in Buffy, it has been pretty reliable. Here, it is not so clear where or what that spark is. For the main plot, which turns out to be this first evil manipulating angel, I think that it must be when Angel sees Daniel across the street. Because that's when he knows it's not just this dream he had of this horrible thing he did in his past as a vampire. It has now intruded into the present. So that happened at 2 minutes 30 seconds in, which is a little bit early. But I don't see anything else that it could be. There also are some very clear subplots in this episode, and shortly we will get one in the Willow and Oz subplot. So one of the things I loved on rewatching was seeing how clearly we do have plot turns in the subplots. That makes this a great episode to watch for how to weave those subplots within your main plot. 
But right now, at five minutes in, Cordelia walks by. She overheard Xander, and she says she thought Xander slept outside to avoid his family's drunken Christmas fights. And Xander thanks her for sharing that information he told her in confidence. She tells them she'll be skiing in Aspen with actual snow, and it must be a drag to be stuck here in Sweatydale. After she leaves, Willow, uh, in response to the others commenting how Cordelia has reverted to form, says they should cut her some slack. She's had a rough time. And Willow also says that she herself is pretty big on forgiveness as a theme this year because of the... And then Oz walks up and says... Hey, this is six minutes in, and it is the inciting incident or story spark in the Oz and Willow subplot. In the next scene, they talk in an empty classroom. Oz is telling her how he felt when he saw her with Xander, and he says, I never felt that way before when there wasn't a full moon, which tells us a lot Despite how calmly Oz reacted in the moment, there were these violent emotions going on. He also says, I know you guys have a history. Willow tries to counter that and says, but it's a history that's in the past. Well, I, I guess most history is in the past, but it's over. Oz, I think very perceptively, responds, well, I don't know. I don't know that it ever will be over between you two. But he says that what he does know is that he misses her. And he says, like every second, almost like I lost an arm or worse, a torso. So I think I'd be willing to give it a shot. And she is thrilled and they hug. So again, Oz, very mature here, he recognizes this bond between Willow and Xander. And he may very well be convinced that there isn't going to be anything sexual or romantic going on going forward. But it is this bond that he needs to be able to live with. And he wants to be with Willow enough that it is worth it to him to try. The next scene is at a Christmas tree lot. Some of the trees have fake snow covering them, which Joyce says are very Christmassy. Joyce suggests to Buffy that they should invite Faith for Christmas Eve. Buffy's not so sure. She and Faith haven't really been hanging out lately or talking or making eye contact. But Joyce asks if she really wants to leave Faith spending Christmas Eve in that dingy little motel room. Buffy says that uh, mom is still great at laying on the guilt, but she'll ask Faith. So this is another very minor subplot in this episode, which is Buffy and Faith reconnecting. And this is a nice spark for that. Joyce's prompting Buffy to issue this invitation. Subplots generally use the same types of major plot turns in the same order as a main plot, but they can come at different spots in your main plot sort of as it fits with that action, sometimes where you need a break from that action. And sometimes they go very quickly, skip over some of the plot turns, but generally they follow that structure so you can use that to figure out what needs to happen in your subplot. Buffy now says, well, what about Giles? They ought to invite him. And Joyce immediately says, oh, no, I'm sure he has other things to do. And when Buffy presses, Joyce just says no and then says, let's split up, which is a nice callback to when she and Giles had sex in band candy. 
And it's another example of how in season three, you really did get so much more out of it if you could watch all of it in order as opposed to just jumping in. If you didn't know that episode, you wouldn't understand why Joyce was uh, so awkward about that. So we're about 9 minutes, 20 seconds in. It is dark. Um, The scene has shifted and there are these guys in monk's robes with no eyes and they are chanting and an angel wakes up in a sweat. Now we go to Faith's hotel. Buffy invites her to Christmas Eve. Faith guesses that Joyce sent her, which Buffy denies. And Faith claims that she has plans. She's invited to this big party. And Buffy says, okay. But if she changes her mind, and Faith again says, well, I've got this big party to go to. Before she leaves, Buffy admires the holiday lights that Faith has strung around the room. And Faith says, tis the season, whatever that means. I see this as the midpoint commitment in the subplot by Buffy. So we we haven't done a major turn at the one quarter point, but we went right to that commitment where Buffy asks Faith and tries to make it clear that the invitation is from her, that she personally wants Faith to come. Now we are approaching the one quarter turn in our main plot. This typically comes from outside the protagonist and spins the story in a new direction, usually raising the stakes. Sometimes it comes a bit later, but here it is right about one quarter through at almost 11 minutes in. Giles is in his apartment. He's cooking on his stovetop, tasting the uh, whatever it is he's making. I feel like Giles' apartment is always this wonderful place to be. He's cooking good food. He's making tea. It's a very um, homey and comforting place. And I sort of love that because it goes against the stereotypes of single people and single men in particular that somehow they can't have a real home or cook for themselves. As someone who lives alone, uh, I I always hate seeing those stereotypes, the implication that you can't have a nice home life if you live by yourself. There is a knock on the door. It's Angel. Giles freezes and just stares at him. And Angel says, "Um, I'm sorry to bother you. Giles says, huh, and laughs and says, sorry, coming from you, that phrase strikes me as rather funny. Sorry to bother you. An angel says, I need your help. Giles responds, and the funny just keeps on coming. Angel says he knows he has no right to ask for help from Giles, but he has nowhere else to go. Giles says all right, but he walks away. An angel reminds him he can't come in without an invitation, and Giles says he's aware of that and returns with a crossbow. He points it at Angel and invites him in. Angel is breathing hard. He's obviously distressed. He tells Giles he has been dreaming about the past, but it's like he is living it again, and he needs to know why he is back on Earth, because he should be in a demon dimension. And Giles says... Knowing why you were back would give you peace of mind? When Angel says it might, Giles points out that that might not be such a good idea. The last time Angel became complacent about his existence, it turned out rather badly. This explains something. I understand Giles' visceral reaction to seeing Angel again. This is the person who killed Jenny. 
and who tortured Giles. So Giles would almost not be human if he didn't have that reaction to seeing Angel. At the same time, Giles, you would think, would make this distinction between Angel the person or the vampire with a soul and Angelus. Until he says this about, yeah, when you got comfortable before, look what happened. It is not only this emotional reaction from Giles. It is a concern that, hey, maybe easing Angel's mind is not a good idea. Maybe Angel should be very wary and vigilant. As he is talking, though, Jenny Callender appears around Giles. She's standing behind him. She's touching his shoulder. And Angel says, don't you see her? And Giles says, who? And she is really spooking Angel, and he says, I can't, and rushes off. This is where I see parallels to A Christmas Carol. Daniel seems like that ghost of Christmas past for Angel, taking him on this journey through his life that we will continue to see, which also will set up the ending that prompts Angel the series or can be seen as the lead-in to Angel the series. And here, Jenny, as we go on, I see her as a sort of the ghost of Christmas present or at least she is emphasizing where Angel is right now, the turmoil he is in. Before we get to that, though, a quick break. It is almost mid-season of season three. This is episode 10, and I am going to take a two-week break after this episode. I'm finishing the fourth novel in my QC Davis mystery series, The Troubled Man, and hoping that during that two weeks, I can make last changes and get it very close to publication. This has been a little challenging. The series is so based in Chicago, and I love making use of the indoor and outdoor scenes and settings of the city. And I'm writing it without reference to COVID-19. You're not going to see boarded up storefronts or restaurants where everyone is outside and only a few people are inside who are much braver than I am. And it's been a little bit difficult emotionally. So I am trying to make sure that I give myself enough time to do what I need to do. Also for me, as it gets cold in Chicago, colder and grayer, I have some mood issues. Uh, I talked a little about it in, I have a nonfiction book, um, Happiness, Anxiety, and Writing. I talk about all the ways to kind of deal with anxiety and moods and use your creativity to do that. And I'm trying to take my own advice. And as we go into that season, normally the holidays, I'm, I'm good with because we have all the holiday lights and things we're actually seeing in this episode that are cheerful for me and help my mood. And then I kind of slump in January. This year, I'm a little concerned because the holidays are going to be so different. So I'm trying to be very proactive about both finding the things that I really enjoy doing that are still possible during this time when we're all being very cautious about social interaction And also making sure that I give myself some relaxation time and free time because my tendency is just to fill hours with work and more work and more work. And despite that I love pretty much everything I'm doing right now, I realized I still need that downtime. 
I didn't only need free time when I was overstressed at work. I still need it now, even though there isn't as much to do with the free time. So I'm really trying to do that. I'm sharing it, hoping that it might prompt you if you have similar struggles to find ways to do that in your own life as well. Angel has raced out of Giles' apartment, and we next see him in bed again, tossing and turning, and it fades into another dream or flashback. It's a holiday party. Angel corners a serving maid under the stairs, and he doesn't have his vampire face on. Uh, She is saying she really needs to go back to work, begging him, saying, I can't lose my job. I'll get put out on the street. And he says, well, go ahead. Call your mistress for help. I'm sure she'll believe you. Then he vamps out and moves to bite her. And then he looks up and Buffy is there. And the lighting is really neat. She's almost sort of glowing and she's staring at him. And Angel wakes up and Buffy wakes up. So they have shared this dream. And we cut to a commercial. So this is another example. The dreams and flashbacks here, they are not stopping the story. They are part of the story. Angel experiencing this, however you think of it, if you think of it as a haunting or his internal struggle, but this is what drives the story. And now the fact that Buffy has seen it too, has been part of it, will be key to everything that happens next. Angel gets out of bed and now Jenny is there and he wants her to leave him alone but she says she can't and he says well what do you want and she says I want to die in bed surrounded by fat grandchildren but I guess that's off the menu. He apologizes but she tells him if he wants to feel sorry for someone he can feel sorry for himself but I guess you've got that covered. She now morphs into Daniel. And the scene changes to Buffy at the library telling Giles she was in Angel's dream. Giles is skeptical whether that's really what happened, but she insists it was and that something is wrong with Angel. And Giles finally says he knows he saw Angel and that there might be a way to find out why Angel is back, that he's been looking into it. And I thought, yay, Giles. Despite everything he said, he is going to try to address this. He isn't letting his feelings about Angel cause him to both fail to help and make a serious mistake because Angel Angel could become a danger again. And Buffy says she's not seeing Angel anymore, but she can't put him behind her if they are doing guest spots in one another's dreams. They agree that they'll help him. And Xander appears in the doorway of Giles' office and says, so where do we start? Buffy is surprised, and he says he knows he hasn't been the bestest friend to her about Angel, but maybe he finally got the Hanukkah spirit. Buffy asks Xander if it's really how he wants to spend his Christmas vacation, and he says it's the most exciting thing he has planned. Who else can claim that pathetic social life? Willow walks in and says, hi guys, what are we doing? After a short montage of everyone reading and studying, Willow and Buffy pause to talk. Oz is coming over to Willow's Christmas Eve. Her parents are out of town, but she says things are still awkward between them. And Buffy comments, Xander has a piece of you that Oz just can't touch. I guess now it's about showing Oz that he comes first. 
I see this as a sort of one quarter turn in the Willow Oz subplot because it's from outside of Willow. This is from Buffy. And Buffy's comment and observation spins this story and gives Willow an idea. We're now about 19 minutes in. Another man is telling Angel how he felt when he found his children that Angel slaughtered because Angel arranged them so artfully. And the man morphs into the serving maid who tells Angel that others kill to feed, but he took more kinds of pleasure in it than any other beast. So each of them haunt him, again, much like the Ghost of Christmas Past showing Scrooge scenes of his life, though we are less defined here with the past, present, and future. Angel tries to argue, saying it wasn't him, it was the demon, that he was a man once, and Jenny is back, and she says, oh yes, and what a man you were. And we have this very quick scene of Angel drinking, almost falling over, grabbing a girl, and now the different ghosts cycle through and taunt him about how worthless he was. Um, it, It is one being morphing into these different ghosts, ending with Jenny, who tells him that cruelty is the only thing he ever had a true talent for, and it's not a curse, it's his destiny. In the library, Xander is yawning, Buffy is upstairs, she falls asleep on the floor near some books and papers, and Angel, too, is sleeping in the mansion. Now we are coming to what I see as the midpoint turn in the main plot. We're about 21 and a half minutes in. Usually here, we see the protagonist make a major commitment to the quest, or suffer a major reversal, or both. And here, what we see is this dream of Buffy and Angel together. They're kissing. They're in her bedroom. They start making love. It's very uh, soft lighting. It's similar to flashback scenes we have seen before of their lovemaking. Then a bringer, one of these eyeless beings, is in the corner in the background and Angel lifts his head and bites Buffy. Angel wakes up. Jenny urges him um, to take Buffy, to take what he wants in real life, to pour all his anger and frustration into Buffy and then he'll be free. And she tells him he can't live for eternity with all this pain, that this is why he's back. She says, this is why we brought you back. And she says, then you'll be ready to kill her. So I feel like here we have both present, she is emphasizing the real torment angel is in his being caught between he can't be human Buffy has left him we saw in becoming one and two that Buffy was what pushed him to want to help people to go from this rat eating um, alley dweller to being this sort of almost a champion fighting on the side of good and Then we saw Buffy say, I can't be with you. So he has lost that, and he can't be the demon that he was. He doesn't want to be this killer, so he is in this space of pain and frustration that Jenny is playing on. And in a way, she is giving him this vision of the future. Do this thing. Go to Buffy, and you will be able to be the monster you were again, and it will be this relief from all this pain. 
I see the dream as a reversal for both Buffy and Angel. Angel, because he is horrified at the thought of doing this, and yet it kind of speaks to him and and haunts him. And for Buffy, of course, this is her greatest fear about Angel. She also does make something of a commitment here to do something for Angel, but she already committed to helping him. So I don't feel like that is a huge commitment. Which brings me to, we need to look at who is the protagonist. So I've talked about before, your protagonist should be the main point of view character, um, should have a goal and actively pursue it and have the most at stake. So here, while we do get a fair amount in Buffy's point of view, considering it is her show, we have a lot of Angel's point of view in this episode. So on that note, I think Angel is more of a protagonist in that sense. Second, Angel has the more active goal here. Yeah, initially he's reacting to seeing Daniel into these dreams, but he more quickly, he goes to Giles and asks for help, even though he has every reason to think, I mean, Giles might kill him on sight or try, but he does. Where Buffy, she is troubled in the beginning, but not enough to go to Giles. And she doesn't become very active until she is in Angel's dream. So it takes more to push her to action. So I think that Angel is more actively pursuing a goal here of finding out why he is brought back and what to do with it. As far as who has the most at stake, I also see that as Angel because um, he is the one in this fight for his soul, for what he will be. Remain the vampire with the soul on the side of the good. Can he do that or become a monster again? Or we'll find out his other option is just end his own existence. Buffy, yes, she is in danger from Angel, but in this episode in particular, she seems so much stronger than him. Angel seems to have more at stake here. Which leads to the question of who or what is the antagonist. Because on first watching, at this point, we don't know what exactly is going on with these different people from Angel's past. Are they ghosts? Our first hint is when Jenny says, that's why we brought you back. But we don't know what the we is. To this point in the episode, it's a little unclear. Is the antagonist Angel's psyche? I mean, he could also just be imagining all of this. Is it Buffy's the protagonist and Angel's the antagonist? I don't think a story has to be totally clear throughout on that. But I tend to like stories that are much clearer on those points, clearer on the plot points, clearer on those issues. As we go through, I think in retrospect, when we get to the end of the episode, all of this becomes much more clear. So I do think it is a well-structured story. It is just one where a lot of the structure is not apparent as you are going through it the first time, or for me, even the first few times. In the library, Buffy wakes up. Giles has found information on the first, an ancient evil that is powerful enough to have brought Angel back. And he shows Buffy a drawing of these eyeless guys and tells us they are called bringers or harbingers, and they are high priests of the first evil, and they can conjure spirit manifestations to haunt people. 
I have some more thoughts about the first evil, also referred to as the first, later on in the spoilers. For now, Giles is explaining that the first can't be fought directly because it is not physical. But Buffy says, well, I can fight these priests if you can find them. She and Xander go to Willie's, hoping he has information. There are holiday lights all around the bar. When she comes in, he yells very loudly, It's the Slayer! What brings the Slayer down here? And the vampires, there's a couple at the bar, and they just slink away. Xander and Buffy question Willie about these guys with a no-eyes kind of look, as Buffy puts it. Xander keeps interrupting saying threatening things to Willie, and Buffy is telling him maybe he shouldn't help. Willie finally says he has heard a few things, that there's lots of migration out of Sunnydale by the lower inhabitants, and these are things that are not easily scared. But he doesn't know where the bringers might be, except that uh, somewhere underground. As they leave, Willie tells Xander he did great, that Willie was very intimidated by him. And he says to Buffy, hey kid, Merry Christmas. And Buffy nods. So lots of Christmas mentions here, which is also what makes me link it partly to A Christmas Carol. But I think it is also because we want to emphasize the time of year when other parts of the country would normally have uh, cold and snow. And on the street, Buffy and Xander further emphasize the contrast because they talk about how hot it is, the sweltering heat. Buffy is frustrated. She says learning that these bringers are underground doesn't help because they're in a town with all these sewer tunnels and Xander mentions also cave formations and a gateway to hell. Xander here, I feel like, is some of the best Xander we get because he reassures her that they will figure it out, but maybe she should go home and deck the halls. And I love that he is encouraging her that it is okay, go enjoy some of the holiday. At 28 minutes, 45 seconds in, Oz walks into Willow's house. He has videos for them to watch, and he's a bit stunned to find her sitting in a very lovely dress with a fireplace, the fire burning, candles burning, and Barry White playing. I see this as the equivalent of the midpoint commitment for Willow. Oz sits down next to her and says, you ever have that dream where you're in a play and it's the middle of the play and you don't know your lines and you kind of don't know the plot? Willow tells him she just wants to make tonight special, and he says, how special are we talking? Willow is awkwardly trying to convey what she means, and she says, we're both mature, younger people, and so we could, I, I'm ready to, with you, we could do that thing. And Oz very kindly tells her he is not ready. She looks great. Everything is wonderful, but he's he's not ready. And she asks if he's scared because she thought he did this before. He says, yeah, he has, but this is different. And when it happens, I want it to be because we both need it to for the same reason. You don't have to prove anything to me. Willow tells him she just wanted him to know, and he says, I know. I get the message. And they kiss. It's similar to that scene in the van when Willow wanted him to kiss her and he thought she was doing it to get back at Sander, except that it's much more clear here that they are feeling good with each other again, that they are back together. So I think right away we got that commitment and then we right away got a sort of a turn as 
the way Oz responds, and the resolution or climax. They are back together, but tonight is not going to be the night that they make love for the first time. And we also, I didn't mention it, but we have that emphasis on first because Willow says she wants Oz to be her first. I'm not sure how that relates to the first evil, um, but I don't think it could be accidental that this scene comes in this episode where we are talking about an evil that's often referred to as the first. We switch to Buffy's house. She and Joyce are trimming the tree. A fire is burning here too, and Buffy says, nothing like a roaring fire to keep away the blistering heat. The doorbell rings, and it's Faith. She has gifts wrapped in newspaper for Buffy and Joyce, though twice she says they're crappy. Joyce is really happy that she's there, and so is Buffy. And Faith admits that she didn't really have a party to go to. Buffy says she'll go upstairs and get their gifts. And now we are going to get that three-quarter turn in the main plot. Before we do that, though... If you like the structure that I use for the podcast going through the plot points, you may want to download free story structure worksheets. You can use them to follow along when you watch the episodes, see what you think are the plot points, or to help plot your own stories, novels, screenplays, however you find it helpful. There is a link in the show notes, or you can go to writingasasecondcareer.com slash your hyphen novel. Also, if you would like to hear more about story structure, Super Simple Story Structure, a quick guide to plotting and writing your novel, is available in an audiobook edition wherever you buy audiobooks, or you can ask for it at your local library. At 31 minutes, two seconds in, Angel stands behind Buffy's door. She comes in and he jumps out at her. He has trouble speaking. He's breathing hard, clearly distressed. We are mostly in his point of view. We see Jenny standing behind Buffy. The camera angle tells us that Angel is mostly seeing Buffy's neck. And he says to her, she has to stay away from him. And Buffy says, you came to see me to tell me that I can't see you? And she tells him something is doing this to him. He comes closer to her. He's very threatening. Jenny urges him on and he yells, leave me alone, and dives out the window. That three-quarter turn typically arises out of the midpoint and spins the story yet again. And we see that here because our midpoint was that dream where Angel and Buffy make love and he bites her. And it did lead to this moment where he comes to her room, maybe telling himself he's going to warn her away, but really there because he wants to act out this dream. And he's having this fight with himself. Now Buffy understands more clearly how far over the edge Angel is and how dangerous he is. She runs downstairs, asks Faith to stay and watch out for her mom. She promises Faith that she will fill her in on what's going on, and Faith is okay with that. 
So I should have mentioned with the Faith Buffy subplot, we had a turn, a sort of three-quarter turn when Faith showed up at the Summer's house. Buffy made that commitment by making it clear she really wanted Faith to come, and though Faith pushed back against her in the hotel room, she does come. So this is a pretty big turn in the Buffy-Faith relationship. Buffy has included her. Faith is willing to be part of this evening with Buffy and her mom. Joyce is very kind. And now I feel like we get a resolution or climax of that subplot because Faith is willing to trust Buffy that, hey, something is really wrong. I need you to stay here. And Faith doesn't argue with her. She stays. She's going to protect Joyce. And she trusts that Buffy will fill her in when a lot of their mistrust came from Buffy not telling her about Angel. So this is a big thing for Faith. Buffy goes to Giles in his apartment, says they have to do something soon. Find her these priest guys because Angel is slipping. And Giles warns her she may have to kill Angel again. So this is an example of something that even on the rewatching and understanding a little more where the story is going doesn't work for me as well because we essentially have Buffy and Giles having this same conversation three times. They had it when she first was telling him she was in Angel's dream and they need to help him and Giles agrees to help. Then in the library after she woke up from that more vivid dream and Giles found the first and he found out about these bringers, these priests, and Buffy says, I can fight them if I can find them. And now she goes back and says, things are really, really bad, and I really, really need you to find me these priests. It feels a little repetitive, and maybe partly it's because this isn't really Buffy's story, it's Angel's story, but it's not as dramatic a movement of what we usually see for Buffy's journey in fighting whatever the evil is. Giles, after asking her, can you do that, when he points out she may have to kill Angel again, we get a cut, and Angel says, I can't do it. And he's speaking to Jenny, who we now, who we know is this first evil, although Angel doesn't know this. And Jenny is saying to me, has to do it, and he was never a fighter. Don't start trying now. She says, sooner or later, you will drink her. And as long as he is alive, that is what he is going to end up doing. And Angel says then he'll die. She tells him he's not strong enough to kill himself, but he says all he needs is for the sun to rise. And he starts heading for the courtyard. Jenny tells him he's not supposed to die. That isn't the plan. But after he is almost out of screen, she says, but it'll do. This is a really interesting question for me is what is the first's plan? Throughout, it it does seem to be to turn Angel evil again, but it also talks about him killing Buffy. And then when Angel is going to kill himself, Jenny says, it'll do, suggesting that Angel killing himself might be so devastating for Buffy that that, that would would somehow be helpful to the first or maybe it's simply taking angel out of the equation is helpful so it is it is never completely clear here what the first is meaning to do and why what the end game is what the big picture is back to buffy and giles giles is reading prophecies that all sound like riddles which buffy comments on 
But he does find something that says the bringers are the harbingers of death and nothing shall grow above or below them. And Buffy connects it to those dead Christmas trees she saw. And I love that Buffy is the one who makes the connection. As is so often the case, her strength is not only physical strength and mystical ability. It is her ability to make these connections. So contrary to the Buffy we saw in The Wish, who says, you know, I'd be no good to you anyway, to Giles, when Giles is continuing to research and she goes off to face the master. Buffy goes to the Christmas tree lot. She finds the dead trees. She grabs an axe and hacks through the ground to a cave below. And there is chanting and lit candles and the bringers are there. And she says, all right, 10 more minutes of chanting and you guys have to go to bed. They have a huge fight, and Jenny appears. And she goes into this long, dramatic monologue, um, things like, you think you can fight me? I'm not a demon, little girl. I'm something you can't even conceive of beyond sin, beyond death. Um, She goes on, and Buffy finally says, all right, I get it. You're evil. Do we have to chat about it all day? But the first then tells her that... Angel will be dead by sunrise, that Buffy's Christmas will be his wake, and she says, you have no idea what you're dealing with. And Buffy says, let me guess, is it evil? Now the first transforms into this very large, scary monster and shouts, dead by sunrise. So now we are moving to our climax, where our opposing forces, usually protagonist and antagonist, have their final clash and resolve the conflict. This scene highlights one of the challenges of the first evil as an antagonist. The first evil is incorporeal. It makes it difficult in a series that includes so much physical fighting. And now we have this entity that cannot be fought physically. The first power is basically to taunt people, haunt people, influence them through talking, all of which doesn't make for many dramatic scenes and particularly not for a dramatic climax in an action-oriented show. So here, the first, the antagonist, is represented mainly or only through its effect on Angel. So we have Angel and Buffy having this climax scene. Buffy finds Angel on a hill looking down at the town. Buffy begs him to get inside. There are only a few minutes left before sunrise, and he says he knows. She tells him he has to trust her. There is this thing haunting him, and she wants to explain the first evil, and he says it wasn't haunting him. It was showing him what he is. And she says, some great evil takes credit for bringing you back, and you buy it. You just give up. This is a great example of two opposing viewpoints. Two characters who feel so strongly and who, depending how you look at it, could be right. So I do love that about this climax, that you don't have to have good versus evil. Angel has been influenced by evil. But the things that he is saying, I mean, there there are ways where they make sense. And Angel tells her he can't become a killer again. She is saying it's it's this evil talking to you. Like, what does it matter what that evil tells you? And he says it matters because he wanted to do it. He wants her so badly. He wants to take comfort in her, even though he knows it'll cost him his soul. And part of him doesn't 
care. And he tells her he has always been weak, and it's not the demon in me that needs killing Buffy, it's the man. Buffy tells him everyone is weak, so I love that she doesn't tell him, oh, you don't really feel that way. She says everyone is weak, everyone fails. But that if this evil brought him back, it means it needs him, which means he can hurt it. She also tells him he has the power to make amends. He has done these terrible things, but he can make amends. But she says, if you die now, then all you ever were was a monster. I see this very much as the theme for the series Angel, because so much of it is about Angel trying to balance the scales or making amends for his centuries as a vampire. They do have a physical fight, um, and he is saying, am I a thing worth saving? She yells at him. She can't lose him again. And she says, I love you so much, and I tried to make you go away. I killed you, and it didn't help, and I hate it. I hate that it's so hard and that you can hurt me so much. Sarah Michelle Gellar does a fantastic job of conveying the emotion in this. And these lines never quite work for me because I never saw Buffy as killing Angel to make him go away. She killed him to save the world and she paid a huge emotional price for that for all of it for loving angel for having a part in him turning for having to kill him so this line which is so dramatic and so heartfelt the way that it's played doesn't work for me yet this episode is written and directed by joss whedon so he certainly knows what his character feels and means so i wonder is this how he sees it for buffy or is it how it needs to be seen for angel as the launch of angel the series because i'm pretty sure he knew that was coming at this point so is it that he has shifted gears and stepped out of Buffy's world and into Angel's world, Angel the series, so we get that line from Buffy. I would love to know that, to know what he thinks or what he thought the motivation was for that line. Buffy goes on to tell Angel that what's weak is giving up. He's saying, let me be strong for once. And she's saying, hey, it's not strong to give up. It's not strong to end your life. What's strong is fighting. But if he's too much of a coward to do it, then burn. Because she says, if I can't convince you that you belong in this world, then I don't know what can. And that's when the snow starts to fall and they both look up in wonder. And there is no sunrise. Angel can't die, at least not today. Until I watched it for the podcast, I really did not get this ending. I think that now I do. I saw it always as this deus ex machina where the gods come down and they just fix everything or just some random coincidence. And that always bothered me because if Angel is our protagonist, He doesn't reach a resolution. He doesn't make a choice. He is just saved randomly. Now, if Buffy is our protagonist, she has done everything she can do, but then it's just sort of taken away from her. But seeing it and really looking at it as a setup 
for Angel the series, to me, it suggests that, okay, we have this first evil. Angel has been fighting and he has been trying to fight it. It leads him to a place of the best thing to do is remove myself from this equation, remove the threat that I pose to the world. And then what we have is perhaps an opposing force, a force of good that comes in and takes that off the table at least long enough that Angel is not in that terrible emotional place anymore. It works better for me when I think of it that way. We move to the falling action. This is where we tie up loose ends in the story for our main plot and subplots. So 42 minutes, 10 seconds in, Willow and Oz, they are dressed. I think Willow might be in pajamas, but they're on her bed, probably watching those videos Oz brought over, and they go to the window and look out in wonder at the snow. Joyce and Faith walk outside together, and Faith holds out her arms to feel the snow on it. She looks so relaxed and happy and has this sense of wonder all in that one gesture. Xander is sleeping in his sleeping bag, and they're is snow all over coming down around him again here we get some of the most healthy Xander we've seen because he has chosen to step away from whatever chaos is going on in his family and has created his own ritual to mark this holiday this tradition so I like that we get to see him with the snow then we see snow on the Sunnydale sign and we hear a weather guy on a tv in a store window saying it's It's the first time snow has ever fallen on Christmas in Sunnydale, and Sunnydale residents shouldn't expect to see the sun at all today. Angel and Buffy are holding hands, walking, looking up. We see the snow-covered ground and the really low budget because the snow just looks terrible. It It just looks like a bunch of cotton. But all the same, it's this this sort of storybook snow globe ending. And I, I do like that because it is a kind of mythic tale. So there is no DVD features here, um, no commentary, no copy of the script on the DVD. I did look to a couple of my favorite books on Buffy for a little bit more on amends. Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Philosophy, Fear and Trembling in Sunnydale, edited by James B. South. The essay Prophecy Girl and the Powers That Be by Wendy Love Anderson, pages 223 to 224. She talks about exactly this issue of of this good and evil and she says it's difficult to say precisely who or what governs the Buffyverse. As we might expect, the powers of evil get a more thorough introduction than their opposites. In fact, from all accounts, evil came first. And she goes on, in amends, Buffy finds herself battling the first evil for Angel's soul. This first, another confirmation, should we need it, that evil precedes good, is represented by a group of priests and can apparently take on any human form it chooses. And she goes on and quotes that long line from Jenny, which ends in, I am everywhere, every being, every thought, every drop of hate. In short, the first evil is not only a first mover, 
labor, it is also omnipresent and extremely powerful. So a little more on that in the spoilers, but I found that a really interesting observation that the idea that yes, we are told that evil came first and evil is referred to as the first and the force of good is not even specifically mentioned in this episode. Other than foreshadowing and spoilers, that is it for this episode. And remember, I will be taking a two-week break. So I'll be back on November 2nd with Buffy the Vampire Slayer Season 3, Episode 12, Gingerbread. If you are not sticking around for spoilers, thank you so much for listening, and I hope to see you then. And we are back for spoilers. So a little more from that book on Buffy and philosophy. This is from page 226. Anderson writes that in contrast to the evil, which is represented in the shows by many different demons, vampires, sometimes human, any supernatural forces of good other than Buffy, Angel, and their companions and fellow slayers are entirely absent from BTVS. On Angel, the powers that be are not only inscrutable and impersonal, but also unapproachable, and the channels by which Angel approaches them tend to undercut their authority. And she mentions a few of them, um, the oracles in Angel, Lorne, the the demon who sings karaoke, a giant plastic hamburger that Wesley goes to to get a prophecy. So that is interesting as well, that we have many faces of evil that are, are very forbidding, and then the ones representing the powers that be tend to be Uh, often a bit almost comical then a few thoughts on Xander this is from blood relations chosen families in Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel by Jess Battis page 59 to 60 in the episode amends Xander admits to a tradition of sleeping outside during Christmas Eve to avoid his family's psychotic arguing The notion of Xander deliberately exiling himself from his own family is one of several family rejection scenarios that occur among Buffy's Scooby gang. And then she goes on to say, but Xander's disavowal is certainly the longest running. Beginning with amends, it surfaces again in season five's episode, The Replacement, when Xander, watching TV in his basement with the rest of the gang, acidly describes the sounds of his parents fighting as, quote, incompetent burglars, unquote. In a later episode, Forever, after Joyce's death has prompted everyone to pay more attention to their families, Xander defends his choice to visit Willow's family rather than his own by stating, I'm not going to my place. Those people are scary. And later on, Battis comments that although Xander should, by all accounts, find vampires, mummies, and demons to be infinitely scarier than his parents, it is the fact that he does not. And all of this, it does tell us so much about Xander, and I feel like it is part of his journey as he gradually tries to become someone different than what his family history might suggest or family dynamics might suggest that he will be, but it is often a struggle for him. On to more of my uh, own thoughts on, on spoilers and foreshadowing. We get that huge foreshadowing when Oz says to Willow about seeing her with Sander, well, I never felt that way before when there wasn't a full moon. So much foreshadowing of the fact that 
he will think he has the wolf under control in season four. And then when he realizes Tara and Willow are together, he becomes the wolf in the middle of the day. And I had no idea that that was foreshadowed so early that Oz's anger and violent emotions are part of what triggers the wolf. Also in season four, at the end, we will see Willow in a play where she doesn't know the lines and doesn't really know the plot. Jenny has the first commenting on Angel feeling sorry for himself. Um, that will be something we will see a lot in Angel the series, how he broods, how he sometimes gets mired in self-pity and loss and probably depression. And Jenny telling him he was never a fighter. Don't start trying now. Sooner or later, you will drink her. This surprised me. I had forgotten this because at the end of season three in Buffy, this turns out to be true. Angel does drink Buffy. Now, it is at her urging to save his life, but he comes very close. Uh, We don't know exactly how close, but he comes close to killing her. And this is what drives him more than anything to leave the show. So the first was right sooner or later. And it wasn't that much later. He did drink her. However, he does become a fighter, contrary to what the first is saying. And genuinely on his own in Angel without Buffy. In Angel, Buffy is gone. Yes, she crosses over a couple times. He occasionally talks about her. But she is not the motive behind him fighting. That Angel says to Buffy he wants to lose himself in her even though he knows he'll lose his soul. And we will see him doing that with Darla. He is in such a dark place. He's so angry and frustrated and depressed that he does have sex with Darla thinking that he will in fact lose his soul he doesn't but he believes that so this foreshadows that angel and it it kind of weighs on the side of maybe angel wasn't totally wrong he is always a potential danger and basically that is another theme of angel the series that angel is almost like this fulcrum the side of evil is always trying to either turn him and get him as a warrior on its side or at least take him out of the equation. Toward the end of Angel, we'll find that this is, this is the key, which way Angel will go. The first evil itself, of course, foreshadows season seven, where the first will be the big bad for the season, will be the antagonist. There's a couple things I think are really interesting because... Maybe this idea of the first wanting Angel to kill Buffy or devastate her emotionally, perhaps that foreshadows a little of the final season because we find out that something about Buffy, the Slayer line, all of it can be thrown out of balance. And it is thrown out of balance when Buffy dies and then is brought back. And it opens up this space for the first evil. Now, whether the first could be planning that right now, I don't know. Like, could the first know that Buffy, if she were killed, would be brought back? I don't think Willow has the power to do that right now. So probably that isn't the plan, but it's it's an interesting question. How far ahead can the first look? 
This also foreshadows some of the problems with using the first as a villain, because part of what I find challenging in season seven is that we have this evil that can't directly act in a physical way. So we do get all these stand-ins for it. We get Uber Vamps. um, We get Caleb the Preacher at the end. uh, We get the Bringers. Sometimes the first takes over people and it seems to be able to make people do things but other times it can't and it it just for me never feels like a consistent enough villain or scary enough in a way because there definitely most of its power is in taunting people and we'll talk about it more in season seven and who knows maybe as with many things I will find it to work better when I look at it in the context of the whole show but I do think we see some foreshadowing here of the difficulties of having Uh, an antagonist that only can work through other beings. So that is it for the spoilers and foreshadowing and this episode. I hope you will come back on Monday, November 2nd for Gingerbread when we will see Amy again and when the adults in Sunnydale will turn on their children. You can find back episodes at my author website, where you'll also find my fiction at lisalilly.com. That's L-I-S-A-L-I-L-L-Y. If you would like to comment on the show, you can email me, lisa at lisalilly.com, or tweet me at Lisa Amazon Marie Lily hashtag Buffy story. Music for this episode was composed and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman LLC, copyright 2020. All rights reserved.